Wrestling with Theology is a weekly Bible study that seeks to equip you to wrestle with the theologies that surround us in our everyday life. Through these studies, your faith in Christ will be strengthened through the Scriptures and the Lutheran Confessions. Join Pastor Minton for these next few minutes as he helps you get ready to wrestle with theology. Yes, the music is going again, and it's once again time for Wrestling with Theology. I am Pastor Doug Minton, here with episode number 90, where we are digging deeper into Exodus in this seemingly never-ending story of the second book of the Bible. But for those of you who are following along and really wishing we would get through, I promise we'll be done in March, maybe even sooner, if I get a few more things merged together. But right now, today, we are talking about the tabernacle frame. What made the tabernacle look like it did? What was it made out of? For this, we're covering parts of chapter 26, 27, 35, 36, and 38. And we won't read through all of them. In fact, we won't read any of it. I encourage you to look back at them. I'll put the actual, the full, uh, the full scripture references in the episode notes so that you can go and, and read them. But we will talk about what exactly is going on as the tabernacle is itself, the building, is being constructed. And we'll take this in two parts. First, we'll talk about the tabernacle itself, the building, the structure, and the four layers of coverings that were over it. So the entire thing, the building, as well as the courtyard for the curtains, were all hung on frames of acacia wood, fitted together with either silver or bronze, depending on what section of the tabernacle it was. The tabernacle building has silver foot fittings. The, the curtain around the court has bronze, simply to denote the fact that the silver is more and more valuable than the bronze. So what happens inside the building is more important than the exterior marking off the holy place and the court of the priest Levites around the building. So first of all, the building itself on the frames has four layers of protective material on top of it. The first one, the one that you would see if you were standing inside of it, is fine twine linen with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. And the blue, purple, and scarlet yarn were woven into the linen with the image of cherubim, so that you were, as Hebrew says, surrounded by an innumerable host. I'm sure there was a number and somebody going back into the rabbinic literature could probably tell you exactly how many cherubim were woven into the linen throughout the entire first layer, but that's not important. The fact that we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses inside 
of the tabernacle is the important thing. And the tabernacle itself was one rectangle split roughly two-thirds down the way where you had one-third with the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant, two-thirds with the rest of the furniture that we talked about last month, the table of the presence, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense. So, you get the frame up, you put this linen curtain, set of linen curtains over the frame, and then you get to the next one, which was goat's hair. Very common with the Israelites, because goats were one of the animals of sacrifice. So they had plenty of goat's hair around, because they would take the hair off with the skin, because... They did not sacrifice the skin for the most part, unless, of course, the goat was a whole burnt offering. So you have this over top of it, cutting out anything in the linen that would give any sort of outside light. As we said last month, the golden lampstand was the only light inside the tabernacle. So then on top of the goat's hair was a tanned ram skin. That, again, rams were quite common for sacrifices as well, so they had plenty of ram skins around. These would be tanned to then help with weatherproofing so that the inside, the more, uh, the, the less durable materials underneath would not break apart in the in the winds of the desert or in the promised land because, as I'll talk about in a minute, this is a rather flimsy operation for what we would consider the house of God at that time. But I'll talk about the importance of that flimsiness in a couple of minutes. And then over top of it, depending on your translation, has goatskin again as the ESV does. Some of them even have like dolphin skin. These were treated so that they would actually be waterproof as well, which is why some go with the dolphin skin, that they were taken from the Red Sea or wherever and then harvested so that the skin was available to then provide that final weatherproofing for the entire thing. The fourth layer being there not just for wind resistance, but also for the rains so that the insides did not get wet or moldy or anything like that that would take away from the awesome presence of God inside that building and the purpose that we were going there for. As I said, all of this seems rather flimsy. I mean, you got acacia wood poles that are holding up these four layers of either linen or animal skins, and it can't be really that sturdy for what we would consider with our church buildings and cathedrals and basilicas and all that. We want the ostentatiousness when God simply provides for plainness. And that is the question. Why would God allow such a flimsy design? In fact, not allow, but command a flimsy design. Because he was going to do that same flimsiness himself and 
you and I are in definite need of it. You think about it. Jesus came down to earth. He could have come down as the Son of God in his glory, but he came in human flesh. And not just human flesh, he came as a baby, conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Went through the entire nine months gestation period that you and I did to then grow up through the toddler years and childhood and adolescence up into adulthood where he then had his three years of ministry calling his disciples, bringing about the revolution of the word of God back to the way God had intended it and had planned it to be with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Bringing that recreation back in. But he did it not as an invincible super, super God, but as a man who looked no different than anyone else. Nothing special about his appearance, as Isaiah 53 says. But still, the most important thing that happened in all of human history. So why would God have his glory and his presence in a flimsy tent? Because he's going to do the same thing with his son, sending him to wear the flimsy tent of our flesh for our salvation. So now we have the tabernacle proper, the tent of meeting as it's also called, which is basically 10 cubits wide by 30 cubits long by 10 cubits high. You'll see those measurements be multiplied when Solomon builds the temple, but it's basically the same general principle and measurement there. So now we get to the court, the outside fence made again of fine twined linen without the embroidered work, just the linen themselves. And again, the question is, why would God have such a flimsy material out in the wind, in the desert? But this is God we're asking things about. And sometimes he does things we don't understand and really shouldn't question. But the court itself was 100 cubits long on the north and south sides, 50 cubits wide on the east and west sides. The difference in it was that the east side of the court, as well as the east side of the tent of meeting, had the opening for the entrance and the gate, so that, quite literally, when the sun came up in the morning in the east, the first rays would land in the gates going into the tabernacle court as well as the tent of meeting itself that the first rays of the sun coming in would shine upon them reminding all of us that that is the direction that worship is it is a looking towards the sun not the one up in the sky that will you know hurt your eyes but the son of god who came down humbled himself to be a human, fragile, just as we are, but then uses that fragility to reveal his glory. Just as God 
in the Old Testament use the fragility of the tabernacle to show that, as John says in the first chapter of his gospel, that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He uses the same word that the Septuagint uses for the tabernacle. And what Jesus did at the incarnation, at the Annunciation, where the angel Gabriel tells the Virgin Mary she is going to be the, son, the mother of the Son of God. That is the most important thing. So the tabernacle was set up so that the most important part of the day, the rising of the sun, would be amplified in the mind of the people and showing us, showing us further that what we are ultimately looking for is the rising of the Son of God from the death of night into the glorious morning of Easter. That is why Good Friday and Easter are the most important days in the entire church here. Because none of the rest of anything matters in the entire Bible without those two days. Without the death and the resurrection of Jesus, everything else is as pointless as any other religious or philosophical system that does not have Christ in it, that does not have a Savior. Because outside of Christianity, there is no salvation, because there is no Savior promised in any of those systems. Just a way for you to make yourself better. And you and I can't do it. We are just as fragile as the tent, as the pillars holding the curtains up, and the curtains themselves. We are just as fragile and flimsy. But God came down in the person of His Son, in the person of Jesus, in order to save us. Because we cannot. Just like the Israelites could not find their way into the promised land, into the rest of God. Not that they were going to have the full glory, because we'll see that Moses doesn't even get that, but the rest that God promises to all of us. As Jesus says himself, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is what the tabernacle was for, is to point out the Sabbath, the day of rest, and the eternal rest that all who believe in Christ will receive. All who believe that He is the true tabernacle. That's all for this month. A little short one for the tabernacle frame. I just wanted to make sure we got everything important in there. And because even though we could go through all the dimensions and everything and all the instructions, really just hone it down to the important things and why this is important. So next week we have Pro Wrestling America. The following week we have Wrestle Extravaganza, as it'll be the fifth Wednesday. So then in three weeks we get back into the theological part as we finally get into the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, looking at the introduction and hopefully maybe the first article on God, where again, we have to say, yes, we agree, and that there is one God in three persons, co-eternal 
as the Athanasian, the Apostle, and the Nicene Creeds all say. But until then, this is Pastor Doug Minton wishing you God's richest blessings as you wrestle with theology this week. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you have questions or comments about what you have heard on Wrestling With Theology, send an email to wrestlingwiththeology at gmail.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, make sure you have subscribed so it will show up automatically on your podcast app. Please also share the podcast so that more may be equipped to wrestle with theology.